Good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time, time to begin our, our grand rounds. Uh, just a couple of uh, quick announcements. First, a, uh, a hearty congratulations to our, our Jewish colleagues. I, I think I'm supposed to say Shana Tova. It's in Spanish, so it may be, uh, you know, I did some, but happy, happy New Year and, and uh, celebration to them. Um, and, and then the second thing is the flu vaccination has started. I remember, this is a uh, requirement uh, for those of you who are coming into Connecticut Children's Medical Center. You really have to have proof of that. Uh, they are actually vaccinating in conference room C, so you can head over there uh, with your badge and they'll give you the, the new badge with proof of vaccination. You can get it outside of the hospital, just make sure you bring it in. Uh, and for those of you who are employed by Connecticut Children's, it, it is a condition of employment. So that's uh, unless you have some uh, valid reason for not getting vaccinated. So I, I appreciate that, that you do that. Uh, today, I'm going to have uh, uh, doc, Dr. Martin, uh, our Chief of Neurosurgery, to come up and, in, and introduce um, uh, our speaker. Uh, uh, I think everyone knows John. Um, I, in fact, I ran into him this weekend. You know, I was sort of struggling with a 5K, you know, breathing heavily, going down the hill. And then he was coming up the hill on some sort of ski-like devices, um, going very quickly. And he just goes... You're doing well, and I was just like, "Thank you, John." <laughs> so, this tells you what you know. Great shape he's in. So, John, if you can come up and introduce the speaker, please. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce the speaker this morning, uh, Jay Wellens. Uh, Jay is is really a, a remarkable um, uh, citizen of pediatric neurosurgery. Uh, I heard him described one time as a Wallonian thinker uh, by the former chief of the, the uh, American Society of Pediatric Neurosurgeons, and he really is a renaissance man. Definitely not. Uh, he's a clinician scientist, to be sure. Um, it will take you the 13 hours that were advertised for this talk to read through just his titles. Um, but he's a, he's a gentleman with a background as an English major. Um, uh, he's a, a, a sort of scholar, philosopher, and uh, somebody who brings a lot of deep thought to pediatric neurosurgery. Uh, I feel very fortunate to count him among my friends, and uh, we welcome Jay to speak to us this morning about fetal myelinating seal closure. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. I, um, it's a great honor when I hear that neurosurgery gets uh, grand, gets pediatric grand rounds uh, two times a year. It's a big honor to be able to stand up in front of my pediatric colleagues. Um, I uh, obviously am a neurosurgeon, uh, but as my colleagues at the Vanderbilt Children's Hospital know, I wear my pediatrics and public health patch very strongly on my shoulder. And I think that uh, Having a strong uh, division of pediatric neurosurgery is very important to the lifeblood of a children's hospital. Not so much for the, the fetal stuff, but uh, for the clots and the shunts and the tumors and the AVMs and the spine fractures and the brachial plexus injuries and all the things that uh, we can add to um, the world at which you do. So uh, it's a great honor to be here in this pediatric grand rounds for me. Now, I'd like to defend myself just to begin very, just, just to say that the, the reason why those are up there is just to say that I do have some other responsibilities, John. And um, one of the ones that uh, we've talked a little bit about is the, the, the Surgical Outcome Center for Kids. And it's an opportunity that we put together, not just for neurosurgery, but for all the pediatric surgical subspecialists to 
basically get on the podium more, publish more, write more grants, get more grants, be more academic. Uh, and um, the hospital has been a tremendous uh, supporter of this, the, um, the section of surgical sciences uh, as well. And uh, as you all have the, uh, the neat thing that's happening with the Department of Neurosurgery where the residency programs are going to come and already a program that uh, Dr. Martin's put together that's just a uh, growing and terrific uh, national reputation. I look forward to, uh, to seeing what the, your program and the program here does over the next few years. It's very exciting. I feel a really significant commonality with you, John. Um, so anyway, thank you for being here. So I do wanna uh, talk a little bit about something that came into uh, my career uh, as a mid-career person when I made the change from 10 years on faculty at UAB to uh, Vanderbilt and that is uh, fetal surgery. Um, and in fact, um, just to, uh, to go a little bit spiritual in a sense because of, the, of the, the holiday that was just referred to, you know, I was, when I looked up at the fetal neurosurgery effort, I was, and arrived at Vanderbilt, I was definitely kind of, you know, show me the holes in your hands and the sword wound on your side because I really don't believe this data. And um, I had the opportunity to be part of a hydrocephalus clinical research network that we'll talk about a little bit. And that gave me a lens to look critically at the data uh, from the mom's trial and come to the conclusion that I do, I do think it made a tremendous difference. Or as John knows, we wouldn't do it surgically if it didn't. I think uh, most neurosurgeons have come, come to a place now where um, we try to use more than just heuristics in our decision-making. But there's also a subtext here, um, speaking as, a, um, as a, you know, a weekend epidemiologist, so to speak, uh, what's the role of a surgical study center once the study is complete? So uh, the MOMS trial uh, was uh, around an eight-year trial, and uh, Vanderbilt, CHOP, and UCSF were the three centers. And in fact, um, uh, there were other centers that were beginning to do fetal surgery and started to do fetal surgery, and they stopped across the country, completely stopped in order for this study to be done, funded by the NICHD for around $26.5 million. Uh, and so the question that is uh, uh, poised here is, what's our role? Do we then say, great, now send us all the patients because we've been doing it longer than you and we're better? Uh, or is it pay us a lot of money and we'll show you how to do it? Or perhaps is it, why don't you come visit us and we'll show you how to do it because um, that's what we all agreed to 15, 20 years ago when this effort started. Um, I would also like to say that these are my views. They don't represent Vanderbilt's views. They don't represent the mom's investigators' views. Um, and they don't, invest, they don't represent the Hydrocephalus Clinical Research Network as well. So these are things that I think, there's some overlap, but, but honestly, I, I think it's important to say that I don't, I don't speak for them in an entirety. I have some things to disclose. The HCRN, uh, the Hydrocephalus Clinical Research Network is a group we're very excited about. Um, University of Connecticut Children's Hospital coming on board uh, with the HCRN QI protocol to, um, as a way across the, we standardize shunt surgeries across the country with a, uh, uh, with the plan of reducing infection and reducing the need for revision. And that'll be something that will become part of your lexicon as, uh, Hospital Hill rolls, rolls into part of that network. Uh, but that's made a tremendous difference in my life and how I look at the research that we do and how I look at um, 
uh, you know, going from a small data studies to larger data studies. Uh, and we have various funding for uh, several randomized control trials that we have ongoing as part of that network. Obviously, MOMS was uh, supported by a large grant from the NICHD, and then uh, we have some other support from other places as well. Uh, this is our division, myself, Rob Naftel, associate professor, uh, does our uh, epilepsy and our spasticity, Chris Bonfield. Uh, we call him our extradural neurosurgeon because he does craniofacial and scoliosis and spine surgery. And we laugh, he's like, what is this clear fluid coming out here? This is, this is odd to me. Um, Sheva Shannon, uh, I've known uh, Dr. Shannon for over a decade and a half. We worked together at UAB and she was a critical part of coming up and forming uh, first our research initiative and then SOX. Um, and then now we have the opportunity to build it for all the surgeons at Vanderbilt, which is quite exciting. Haley Vance is our non-operating neurosurgeon. She's an unbelievable partner in the, in the field. And you know, you get in the elevator with a child that you've operated on and they're like, hey, Dr. Wellens, Haley, you know, I mean, it's very classic. She's just a wonderful addition to our department. And then Charles helps us on the outpatient clinics, but that's our group. I can't stand up here and talk about fetal neurosurgery and fetal surgery without talking about Noel Tulipan. Noel was a very gentle voice, um, but an excellent surgeon. Um, early in the days of uh, fetal surgery before moms, uh, if you look at his CV, you know, I always will show it to the residents and say, you know, this is how you work a problem. This is how you spend your career doing it in I mean, he's it's doing it in the basic science model with the translational model, doing it in rabbits and then sheep, and then writing the IRB and going through the ethics steps and doing the first fetal uh, closure, and then beginning to study it, not just on a case report, but a case theory. What are we looking at? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to reduce hydrocephalus? We're trying to make function better. Uh, and then being part of a large randomized control trial that, that honestly has changed, I think, the way that we think about spina bifida, and I will show you that it also has impacted the way that we think about when to treat hydrocephalus, not just in spina bifida patients, but in all other patients as well. And so I can't stand up here without saying, A, Noel was a good person and he died too soon. He was an author. He wrote two books um, at the end of his career, and the only way that I could convince him to have a, a retirement party was to say that it was a book signing. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to kind of fet um, uh, Noel at the end of his career. But when I arrived from UAB, uh, you know, I was a full professor and I had learned everything I needed to learn. And in truth, that was not the case. And I've never really approached things that way anyway. And I had the wonderful honor of being able to operate several times with Noel um, and learn from him who I used to say had at that point done more fetal uh, neurosurgery than anybody in the known galaxy, which I think was true, right? But, um, but anyway, Noel was a wonderful person and a good friend and we're very appreciative to all that he did for this effort. So to back it up a little bit, you know, like what's a fetal center? Um, what does that mean? Uh, and you know, the obligatory slide that says that it's that, you know, supportive services and imaging, you know, I'll, I will point out a few things that are critically important, a genetic counselor, is this going to happen to my baby again? That's an incredibly important thing uh, to play when we see these patients up front. Uh, imaging, uh, ultrasound, fetal echocardiography, which plays a role in the OR for us as well, and fetal MRI, and I would add judicious use of fetal MRI. Not everybody needs a fetal MRI. Um, some do, some don't, and, don't. and you know, I think um, 
living in the South, there are issues about whether people are going to terminate pregnancies or not. And if that is part of the decision making, then it may make a difference or it may, may not make a difference. And so I think it's, um, it's a discussion uh, about whether or not fetal MRI is useful in every single fetal consult that we get. And we don't do that. And I think a judicious use of it is, is ideal. And I'm happy to talk about that offline. And then lots of teams. I will say that the, these top three teams are probably the groups that are that see the most. Obviously, MFM, you know, is kind of the quarterback of the team, and pediatric cardiology. Um, one of the things that uh, that our fetal center leaders like to say is that when children have been found to have a prenatal cardiac defect, 98% of them have assigned pediatric cardiologists by the time they're born. That is a strong kind of again public health statement to say if when these when these are diagnosed, not all of them need surgery, but you know we all know the importance of having a strong, robust pediatric cardiology and pediatric cardiothoracic surgery program for a children's hospital as well. And this is a, a good way to identify patients up front and have them here and have them assigned and have their solutions already written down for them before they're even born, which I think is a, is terrific. And the same thing goes for neurosurgery. I mean, I would really say that of the rest of these groups, these, these two groups are the ones that are the busiest. Ventricles a little bit large, you know, ventricular megaly, encephalocele, um, fetal surgery uh, for spina bifida. Not a candidate for spina bifida, but needs to hear about what, what that means and what that's gonna impact them. Uh, and, you know, having that robust center and thing that you can offer your patients, uh, I think is, is actually terrific. So, you know, this is a good example. So, you know, why is a pediatric neurosurgeon putting an umbilical cord up on the slides? And I think it really highlights the importance of what a fetal center can do. Because I look at this, you know, and to me, as an English major, this looks like the Gordian knot uh, that uh, from Alexander the Great that was referred to in Henry V, you know, turn him to any cause of policy, the Gordian knot of it, he will unloose familiar as his garter. And there's the classic story of Alexander the Great riding into town and Either he cleaved it with his sword or he pulled a pin and the whole knot fell apart. But either way, there was a solution to it. Well, in reality, the solution to this is to identify as monoamionic, monochorionic twins are unbeknownst to me called the MOMO, which, you know, MFMs talk about like it was, you know, what they had for lunch on Tuesday, a MOMO and a MOMO. <laughs> um, but it actually occurs one in 50,000 pregnancies. And there are specific, and if any of my colleagues here on MFM and I'm misspeaking, just throw something at me, except for you, Dr. Bulsara, you're not allowed to throw anything at me. But the point being is that uh, there are things you can do. You can give Lasix, you can bring their fluid down so that the babies don't move around as much and run the risk of kinking off the, the, the amniotic, you know, the, the cord. And what happens in, a, I think, a highly functioning fetal center is that you end up having two healthy live birth born children that are born term that don't have the issues that come with being born preterm. So I think this is a good kind of non-neurosurgical example about what a fetal center uh, can do, I think, in its, in its highest form. It's take parents that are afraid with things that are big deals. And, and if I would imagine there's a part of this room that has probably had a lot of big deals in their life. And I would imagine that this, there's a part of this room that hasn't experienced a lot of big deals in your life, but you will experience them. And when you come to a place where, where you're given a, a plan and you're given the peace that comes with a plan, I think you're doing the right thing from a public health standpoint for the children and the parents that you've been asked to care for. So 
you know, basically things are identified and they come in at around 18 to 22 weeks and get a fetal ultrasound. There's some abnormality that's detected and they get referred. There's high resolution ultrasounds. And as I was saying before, the, the, the plan, the piece that comes with the plan. And really, if you look back in the past, the whole fetal center at Vanderbilt, which was initially funded by the, by the Junior League, uh, is, really came about from fetal surgery. And it was Noel Bruner, who was OBGYN, MFM, and Dr. Til and Noel Tulipan. Um, Joel Bruner and Noel Tulipan, who did this work together. And from that, over the ensuing 20 years, you know, that team of two is now a team that fits on the entire stairs. And now the fetal center of Vanderbilt, which has gone from half a day of clinic, it now goes to five days a week of clinic. And we see patients every single day a week, we get called over to see uh, people in the fetal center, which luckily is on the same floor as our own offices. So we're very available to them for that. And we see around 1800 at last check, around 2000 patients uh, per year. So I think it's, it's a great example of how it's gone from, you know, two surgeons with an idea to something that's impacting patients on a broader term. And now we see things like congenital diaphragmatic hernias uh, up in the top left, you know, uh, cystic hygromas, encephalocele, uh, skin covered, uh, umphalocele, and uh, sacral coccygeal teratomas. These are things that um, sometimes, okay, fetal uh, spina bifida surgery can be intervened upon in the womb, and sometimes they cannot. But again, uh, the discussion with the family about what the plan is makes a tremendous difference. And, their own lives. So here's a good example of a fetal MRI. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's the, the fetus's head is here. You can see mom's uh, spine here, the fecal sac, CSF here, amniotic fluid here. That's the bladder there. Every time I see this picture and I see where the head is in relationship to mom's bladder, it makes me want to go to the bathroom because you see how much the head just hits right on it, and particularly when the bladder gets large. But you can see the ventricles are slightly larger here. Uh, you can see the placenta here. And then as we get a little bit closer on another image, you can see the, um, the vertebral bodies here, skin here, and then there's a little bubble, a little defect there. Uh, and you know, with good resolution of fetal MRIs and ultrasounds, you can count the level to determine what, um, you know, you know, what, what the level of the lesion is. And we'll talk about that in a bit in a minute. And then, you know, this is an example of what a child looks like that's born with spina bifida. Now, this is not the same child that's been imaged because this, that level here is a lumbar lesion, and this is a more severe thoracal lumbar lesion. But there's some critical things to go over for the people who may not live in this world very much of spina bifida, and that is uh, really the, the spinal cord uh, at around uh, the 23rd and 25th and 27th day kind of it rolls up. We start out flat like a piece of paper and we roll up into a tube that's called uh, you know tubulation or neuralation and the anterior neuropore closes at around the 25th day and the posterior neuropore closes around the 27th day and if the anterior neuropore doesn't close the most severe form of that's anencephaly and most of those children uh, you know the, the pregnancy uh, ends during uh, the spontaneous term um, you know, termination or abortion but the, the children where the posterior neuropore doesn't close, depending on where that, didn't, where that zip up stops is where the spinal cord basically, for the lack of a better word, or at least to a Mississippian, just stays flayed open. And so not only does the spinal cord not round out, but the dura doesn't come across, is not induced to come across that. There's no fat, there's no bone, there's no muscle, there's no fascia, there's no fat, there's no skin. There's just the spinal cord that comes out and is attached to dysplastic skin around it. 
And it's not only what you see from a cosmetic standpoint, but every nerve root below that, there's no function. So uh, the lower the level of the lesion, you know, if you're an S1, an L5, or an S1, you probably have hip flexion, extension, and a little dorsiflexion in your feet. So that kid, you can pretty much tell that that child will probably be an ambulator once they're born. But a child that has a high lesion like this has very little chance of being, being able to ambulate. Um, and in fact, you know, bladder functions nearly always affected. And then not only that, but then it's the issue of hydrocephalus that occurs. And uh, hydrocephalus, is, as many of you know, is an issue where the spinal fluids, cerebrospinal fluid is not absorbed. And there's lots of different ways. You can have lack of absorption, you can have obstruction, and you can even rarely have overproduction, which is a rare form, but you can have that. And then how you treat that with either a shunt or an ETV, which is an endoscopic procedure that does an internal bypass. These are all things that, um, that we have to think about as neurosurgeons to care for these patients. And so the impact on a, on a child and on a family is pretty significant. So enroll the mom study. Uh, so again, this world was picking up, people were doing it. There wasn't a lot of data, uh, kind of led by neurosurgeons at other centers. Uh, and we're very fortunate that our neonatology colleagues said, we need to stop doing this and we need to figure this out if this is right or not, because the, a lot of these babies are getting born early. And when they're born early, there's issues. So we need to do a study. And so the NICHD stepped up, and like I said before, $26 million study where the patients were randomized between two groups, either postnatal surgery or intrauterine surgery. Uh, they, uh, the primary outcome was presence of the shunt. Uh, well, technically the primary outcome was a composite outcome. Um, I mean, was a adjudicated outcome of whether or not the patient should have gotten a shunt or not. And they had a, a group of five experts that were able to adjudicate in a blinded fashion. They also looked at whether or not patients got shunted as a surrogate for development of hydrocephalus. And then a secondary outcome uh, was a strong secondary outcome was, com was composite uh, between uh, function uh, and uh, the cognitive portion of the Baileys. I think it was a type 2R that was used at the time. And uh, this ultimately ended up in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, and was uh, very profoundly felt across our field. I remember the night before uh, the New England Journal of Medicine was about to release a, uh, an online uh, announcement of it. And the night before, when it was about to come out, I got emails from several colleagues saying, this is really remarkable, because it had really been shut down and blinded to the, to the neurosurgical uh, field and about how strong the study was. And, and just, again, speaking a little bit of as a weekend epidemiologist, you know, most trials, I don't know what it's like for you guys, but most trials are halted. Uh, and when they're... Uh, most trials that are halted are halted because there's some issue with the intervention group, right? It turns out it's not safe, or it turns out that the drug that's being used has a side effect that wasn't recognized. So it's halted because it's not safe for the patients. This is, in my studying of surgical trials over the years since the ACAS study, remember those, Dr. Bulsara way back when, Dr. Martin, those, the long ago carotid studies that made such an impact on surgical uh, clinical outcomes research. This is the only study where, that, that I know of that I've identified where it was halted because the, the impact was so profound to the patients that not doing it uh, was thought to be a harm to the, to the fetus. 
um, because the impact was so strong. And even if every child had a negative impact and had no benefit from fetal surgery from the, um, about the, I think it was the third look inside the study, even if every study had a negative impact, it still wouldn't have pulled the study back into, uh, into an equivocal state. So because of that, they halted the study uh, and said, this is such a strong impact. Now, the benefit of that is to say big impact. The negative of that is that studies are powered for primary outcomes, but there's a lot of other secondary outcomes that you've apported power and statistical significance to that you may or may not be able to see a difference because the primary outcome is halted. So anyway, just keep that in mind as we move forward. So um, if we have time, I have a surgical video later, and if, if it's after Tom, I'm happy to show it. But uh, basically, this is uh, Kelly Bennett, who's our team leader, MFM, terrific leader, very calm. Uh, and this is the uterus that's exposed. Uh, this is Kelly here. Uh, this is Alicia, who's the ultrasonographer that keeps an ultrasound on the uterus as we do the procedure. And she's in line of sight with, um, with Ann, the pediatric cardiologist over in the corner that's constantly calling out um, what, the, what the fetal heart rate is and what the um, ejection fraction is of both the right and left heart. In fact, we just did, um, I don't think I told you this, John, we did one on uh, last Tuesday where the fetal heart rate was less than the fifth percentile and the ejection fraction was low. And it was a really for a group that's been doing it together for a while, it was a bit of a go, no-go decision. Open, uterus was open, uh, had to put the, had to bring the abdominal wall back around the uterus and wait to let the baby stabilize. Do we pharmacologically manipulate it? You know, because, you know, you, you're gonna lose blood to the fetus and, you know, there's not much blood circulating, so are they gonna be able to tolerate this? And then gradually it, the heart rate stabilized and then we brought the uterus back out again and the heart rate remained stable and we did the surgery and it was fine. But there's a lot of kind of go, no-go decisions that occur during, during this procedure. But the goal of this talk is to further evolve the understanding of the mom's data to, and I think, talk about refining the surgical technique, which is important as we continue to evolve how we do things. And then also talk about, you know, training other centers. So let's talk about the understanding of the mom's data. So study went from 2003 to December, 2010. It's three centers, 183 patients. It was halted in randomization. The surgeries were done uh, around 19 to 25 weeks and the primary outcome was shunt and death, although luckily death didn't come into play. And then secondary outcomes was the composite between mill development, and motor function, and then lots of other things, uh, which we'll talk about. Now, hopefully this is projected, but I, what I really wanted to do is is put green stars next to the primary outcome, uh, you know, which is whether or not uh, a shunt was placed. So 68% of the kids that had intrauterine surgery got a shunt and 98% of those that had surgery uh, the standard way had a shunt. And then um, uh, there the, um, this is it, sorry, I'm so sorry. Primary outcome was the adjudicated outcome afterwards. And that meant whether or not they should have had a shunt based on what the criteria was. And that's the five experts going, and we'll talk a little bit about what those criteria were. But whether or not they actually had a shunt is here where the big difference was, the 40% versus 82%. And that difference between who got a shunt and who didn't get a shunt, I thought was a very interesting difference. And we'll talk about what we did with that later. But anyway, the bottom line is they were shunted less as a surrogate for having hydrocephalus. Their degree of hindbrain herniation was less, big old p-value. 
any brainstem kinking, degree of brainstem kinking, what does brainstem kinking mean? Maybe it means KRE2 symptomatic, maybe it doesn't, uh, but certainly a lot of secondary outcomes found in the mom study. The um, psychomotor outcomes, we're looking at the uh, primary group with the motor and these uh, composite outcomes at 30 months. And you can see that there was a difference in the primary um, outcome of the psychomotor, which was that Bailey's mental development index and the difference between the motor function and the anatomical function. So let me tell you what that means. So if you look down here to difference between motor function and anatomical levels, you can see that more kids basically with intrauterine surgery had two levels better, okay? But this is not taking kids with a thoracolumbar lesion, closing their defect and causing them to walk. This is taking kids that have maybe an L2, L3 lesion and doubling from 20% to 40% their chance of being able to become an ambulator. And that's a very important thing to talk about because when you do prenatal counseling with patients, uh, there are videos that circulate out there that are almost of that, I don't know if people saw the movie Forrest Gump where the kid, you know, Forrest Gump's running and he shakes the, the braces off of his legs and it's the run, Forrest, run scene. I mean, there, there's almost this sense out there that it's a panacea, that it's a complete cure, and that's not the case. One of the things that I think we strive for is to say, what really makes a difference? What are we really looking at? And, and so I'll talk about the relevance of this again in just a minute. And though, what about the negative issues? So there's more membrane separation in prenatal surgery patients, more oligohydramniosis, more spontaneous membrane rupture, more spontaneous labor. And then this is the big one here, you know, gestational week is 34 versus 37. And also there was many more that were born, 13% were born less than 30 weeks. So even though the study itself showed such a huge benefit to the primary outcome of hydrocephalus into the psychomotor outcome of, um, of function, there was still a pretty big drawback here. And so again, this is another place that I would just say, put a mental note here that where this can be improved uh, in as we evolve how we do this. And so, you know, here's the bottom line. And then, you know, it's in the adjudicated, those that went on to be, have a shunt placed 98% to 68. Those that actually had a shunt was 82 to 40. Motor level improvement goes up from 20% to 43%. Spontaneous labor increases and gestational age uh, is, is lower in the prenatal group. And, and again, just so I can summarize it for Dr. Martin, shunted less, motor function better, earlier delivery. Just what I, you got that? Okay, all right, good. Okay, just wanna make sure he gets that part, okay. So, um, so when I got there, um, Noel gave me exactly uh, two and a half weeks of, um, of getting my uh, feet on the ground to say, uh, I want to use all these epi things that you know to write a proposal to the mom's investigators uh, because they promised me uh, the shunt paper on the mom's data. And I was like, really, really, you know? And, uh, and so, with the life-changing background that the HCRN had, like that's why I ended up getting an MSPH, is because I would, uh, you know, if you want to get better at tennis, you got to play tennis with people that are better than you, right? And so uh, HCRN was an opportunity for me to be around people that were smarter than me and better than me at many things, and they influenced me to, to get that uh, MSPH. Um, but so I say that because I just finished it. So I arrived with all this new ability to understand how to set up studies and went to work 
and we put a proposal into the mom's investigators that was pretty rock solid. Um, and I've got no problem at all saying that um, while the HCRN is a group of investigators that, you know, we, uh, we're going to go to our investigator meeting. Uh, it's actually twice a year later on this week. And, you know, we all run together, you know, at some point before the meeting starts. The, the mom's investigator was not like that. It's a very different world. And so I was very happy that we were able to put a proposal together that made its way through kind of the, um, the gauntlet of, uh, of, of the group and ultimately ended in a publication. But what we wanted to look at was the, the first two things, the prenatal and the postnatal. Um, and that is when I am sitting in that room around that table with parents that are worried and trying to get data and understand what's going on with their baby that's just got this diagnosis, is there something that I can hang my hat on that says this baby, this fetus will really improve or not? Because to me, the you've got a baby, you've got a fetus that has spina bifida, you need fetal surgery, that doesn't work for me anymore. It has to be data driven. It can't just be, it's magic and it's gonna make everything better. And so what we did was there were these four variables that were kind of identified a priori in the mom study to keep an eye on. Um, and so gestational age, which is dichotomized, as you see here, lesion level dichotomized, ventricular size, the presence of hind brain herniation, which had specific radiological parameters, and then we did all a bunch of stats. And basically what we saw, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of dial into this with a bigger slide, is that gestational age, maybe in univariate analysis might make a difference. So the younger you were, if you were less than 23 weeks at the time of fetal intervention, you might have uh, gotten more of a benefit, but ventricular size seemed to make a difference. And I'm going to go forward one slide and say in multivariate analysis, it was really it was really ventricular size that made the difference. And I want to dial into this. And so what does that mean? That means that if, if a fetus during consultation during those weeks, if the ventricles are measured less than 10 millimeters on each side, then that child had a 20% likelihood uh, if they have intrauterine surgery to going on to getting a shunt place for hydrocephalus, i.e. developing hydrocephalus, versus postnatally it was just under 80%. If the ventricles were between 10 and 15, it, uh, it roughly decreased it by half. If the ventricles were already large, it didn't make a difference, right? And we took that data and applied it to our own data since that time, since the mom study and found that to be really significantly legit. And so the point being is that if that fetus comes to me, if the parents come to me with a baby, with a fetus that shows the ventricles are already greater than 15 millimeters, then I cannot look them in the eye and say, from a hydrocephalus standpoint, the risk of fetal surgery is worth it. But if those ventricles are less than 15 millimeters, then I can say in my mind, it's worth it. And that's for the hydrocephalus piece. So again, Earlier the better, maybe. Univariate, yes. Multivariate, no. But it's pretty clear about the ventricle piece and the size. And so then I also wanted to look at the postnatal predictors. So prenatal predictors was, was when the baby comes, when the parents come to you with the fetus, look at these variables, can you tell them? Postnatal is, you know, the, the parameters that I talked about was they looked at the OFC, the, the, how big was the head, how rapidly was it getting bigger, what the ventricles look like. Were they symptomatic? Those are the main four of those top criteria. Um, and 
if you look at the primary outcome, which was the adjudicated group that came on and said, without knowing how the patient was treated, did they go on to get a shunt placed or not? 68% intrauterine went on to get a shunt, 98% post. But the actual placement of the shunt decision that the hydrocephalus was symptomatic uh, was 40 versus 80%. So there's a pretty big difference there of 28% and 16%. So we basically started taking one variable and taking it out and seeing what the difference is. The next variable, taking it out, take the, the next variable, taking it out and see what the difference is. And it turns out that the 1B, uh, 1B, which is a bulging fontanelle or split sutures or sunsetting eyes, if you mandated that that's present, in other words, when a surgeon or a person comes and looks at the baby once born and says, is the fontanelle bulging or not? Are the sutures split or not? Is there sunsetting or not? If you mandated that, then the difference was pretty minimal in both groups. And so the interpretation of that actually mimics something that we saw in the HCRN in preemie-IVH patients, and that is when infants didn't have split sutures or bulging fontanelle or sun-setting eyes, the incidence of shunt placement was reduced, implying that neurosurgeons at least tend to rely on those clinical signs to guide shunt placement or now um, um, uh, CSF diversion intervention. So the Predictors from that piece is that split bulge and sunsetting eyes were prioritized by surgeons over OFC and vent size. And then the MOMS investigators then said, okay, that paper's come out uh, about ventricular size. What about function? And, and the, what about the um, um, psychomotor function piece? And so I've highlighted it here, but at the end of the day, uh, I don't want to chew too much time up, looking at those same variables, basically, walking and a different, the, the two level improvement in uh, actual level versus predicted level, those are sustained, okay? So what we have in that scenario uh, then is that the outcome of the MOMS study was sustained at 30 months for the entire cohort and that maybe ventricular size is decoupled from motor outcome. And so, well, what does that mean? Uh, everybody's like, what is he talking about? He's like, tied himself up into another Gordian knot. But what I'm trying to say is that when that couple and their and mom-in-law and is in that table sitting around, if those ventricles are already greater than 15 millimeters and it's a thoracic level lesion that you add two levels to, that's not going to make a difference in the ambulate or not, and the likelihood of having a preterm baby is what it is, then I look at that family in the eye and say, I'm very comfortable telling you that I don't think there's any benefit whatsoever to fetal surgery. Right, and I think that's a powerful statement as a surgeon who likes to operate. Right, and you know, John will tell you and Ketan will tell you that if you know, part of it, we can teach anybody how to operate is teaching people how and not to operate. And and I think now I would say teach people to use data to know when and when not to operate. So I can sit in that room and tell them that. However, if their ventricles are less than 10 millimeters and they have an L3 lesion, which would add two levels and make them an L5 lesion at the very best, which takes them from a non-ambulator to an ambulator. I have to sit on my hands with excitement to say, oh my gosh, you're such a great patient. I can't wait to do this. This is gonna be so beneficial, right? And then there's all kinds of points in between, but it allows me as a surgeon who's you know, hitting the 20th year of my attending ship to be able to say, you know, I can give, I have data to be able to look at you and say, this will make it better or this will not make it better. And we can either accept the risk or not accept the risk together as a, as a team. But then the, the field, once moms came out, has, has been kind of a little bit all over the place. 
And, and that's okay, because that's kind of what happens when disruptive innovation occurs. But one of the things that's been interesting, and, and I think is a responsibility of us as a center, is to refine the surgical technique. And before I move to this part, I just need to clarify that, you know, the placard said that I was supposed to speak from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. And so I made a 13-hour talk for everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it, does it end at nine? Is that kind of the general sense? Okay, good. So refine the surgical technique. And so there's lots of things that we look at that can be, that can change, that once you refine the surgical technique, they can have an impact, like on hydrocephalus and how we CSF divert, on motor function, on preterm birth, on tethering. So tethering is where the spinal cord, you know, it's not like you close these things and they become a normal conus. That doesn't happen. Everybody is radiographically tethered. So who is it that is physiologically tethered? And is there something that we can do at the time of surgery uh, that makes a difference in whether or not they tether and have function later on? And then what about subsequent delivery? Time, the cosmetic piece, these are all issues that are involved with technique. So from a hydrocephalus standpoint, it's very important to remember that, you know, this is what cell phones looked like back then. I mean, the culture of CSF diversion has changed immensely since moms, right? In uh, the early 2000s, endoscopic third ventriculostomy swept across our field as a way to treat obstructive hydrocephalus. I know these guys very actively do that, where you put a scope in and you do a diversion uh, by opening up the floor of the third ventricle instead of having to put a shunt in. But what, that, what we found was that that didn't work very well for infants. And in fact, the data for that was terrible. And then Ben Worf, who I know all of you all, uh, or some of you may know, MacArthur kind of genius grant kind of guy, basically took his family of seven, went to Uganda and started treating kids in hydrocephalus, with hydrocephalus and realizing that he really couldn't put silastic and plastic in and send them back out into the bush. That he needed a different technique, a different way to manage it. So we tried ETV and again, it mimicked the same data that we saw in the, in the Western world was that it really didn't work so well for infants. And so he went, he went back, it's a fascinating story and looked at uh, work that had been done by Walter Dandy uh, in the, you know, in the early 1900s, where the choroid plexus, before shunts even came out, where the choroid plexus was basically cauterized. And that's the part of the brain that makes spinal fluid. For those of you that have seen it, it looks like, you know, if you're scuba diving, it almost looks like plants that are just kind of flowing back and forth in the, in the spinal fluid. So he added that cauterization with the endoscope piece. And lo and behold, it made a tremendous difference in the children in Uganda. And so, he came back and preached that to North America and, and he was met with some pushback, like that's not gonna work. I don't, I don't you know, it's, this is, we've run this experiment before. And what we basically found in the ACRN as we've just gotten funded by the NICHT to do a randomized controlled trial between ETV, CPC and shunt placement <laughs> is that it actually can work and that we've powered the study not on ventricle size, well, we powered it based on the Bailey's, I think the Bailey's 5R now, in order for us to know what the, um, the, the neurologic outcome is, as opposed to the surgeon-centric outcome. <laughs> so ETV is really, ETV and ETV-CPC has changed the landscape. In addition to the fact that I showed you a little while ago that surgeons uh, don't necessarily hold to the same criteria now about putting a shunt in than they used to. So what do I mean by that? Well, you know, we put folate in bread and that reduces the overall incidence of children with spina bifida to begin with. And then around rolls moms, where if we select out children that um, are good candidates for fetal surgery, 
uh, we can reduce the need for placement of a shunt. And then Robin Bowman is a wonderful pediatric neurosurgeon in Chicago, uh, who basically, you know, is uh, one of Dave McClone's kind of disciples and then has come into her own uh, as like, why are we shunting all these patients? Like, look at the achondroplast population. We used to shunt those kids all the time, and now it's really rare um, that we shunt them. And, you know, and I can remember at UAB, I would close a defect and then, okay, get the post-op ultrasound on day three, vents are up a little bit, let's pop a shunt in before they go home, get them all teed up so they can get home early. And boy, is our practice different now. Boy, do we let the ventricles go up and the head circumference go up some and the baby's feeding and they're, they're doing fine, they're doing great, and they come back at the two-week check and then they come back at the three-month check and their head circumferences are topped off and the baby's doing great and they're, they got motor movement. And this is for prenatal and postnatal, both. So it's changed in a remarkable way uh, how we approach hydrocephalus to the point it would be interesting to go back and redo the mom study and see if it would have such a significant difference. I think that it would, but I think there'd be other things that we would power the study for, like the psychomotor income, uh, uh, outcome piece, income. Um, what about preterm birth? One of the big negatives of the mom study. Um, so Kelly Bennett, who's the, the head of our group, uh, is incredible. It's just a really good surgeon. Um, she's very meticulous. And she felt like it was the separation of membranes that was causing the preterm labor that was causing the babies to come early. And so she has this technique that she developed where she just very meticulously sews the membrane up to the, up to the wall of the uterus itself. Uh, and what we did is we compared a group that we did at Vanderbilt with that methodology to the fetal group that was done in the mom's trial, keeping the same variables. And we showed that the incidence of PROM and the and I'll, I'll say the Vandy group versus the mom's group was significantly reduced. You can see it there. Amniotic, uh, chorioamniotic separation went to zero. Um, term birth went way up 39%. The number of, remember the, the number of less than 30 um, weeks, that went way down. Everything was improved compared to the mom's fetal cohort. That, uh, that technique has been adopted by many other centers that we've had the opportunity to, to be a part of, of kicking off their own fetal programs. What about tethering? You know, it's a lot of questions. Like lots of these lesions are too big um, to close primarily. Uh, so do you put a patch in the middle? Do you put a patch on the sides? Do you close the dura primarily? Do you just put a, do you put a, a little graft inside there? There's so many different ways to do it now. And you know, John's just probably sick of hearing me say this, but how many times have I stood up in front of our national group and said, we need to do something like a phase four post-marketing study where we look at these different ways um, and see if there's some way that decreases the incidence of tethering and uh, and improves overall outcome. You know, our choice is that we tend to do bipedical flaps. So, you know, if we can't get the lesion across, if we can't get the skin, because it is like wet tissue paper trying to sew, then we'll make incisions out on the side of the fetus and rotate those bipedical flaps in just get awesome, great skin coverage over the midline, and then sew little flat, little patches on the outside. And those things are either incorporated or spit out by the time, um, by, by the time the baby's born. I mean, if if we think that that children are forgiving in terms of their ability to recover from brain tumor surgery, it's amazing. Once you put the baby back in the oven and it cooks a little bit longer, like they are born, it's just this little white line on their back. And there's still so much happening uh, in that, that end of that last trimester that we don't know about. 
Um, so I have to talk about the, um, not just the open effort, but the, but the endoscopic effort that's led by Bill Whitehead's group down at Texas Children's. Um, you know, the, you can still, the uterus is exteriorized just like it is in open surgery, but the openings are smaller. Um, the data is, as with any surgical technique, was worse early on, but it's starting to get better. Uh, and it's very interesting to watch uh, what will happen. You know, operating with laparoscopy is not something that neurosurgeons do a bunch of, but it's, it's like operating with the elbows locked a little bit. Um, and I don't want to offend any of my pediatric surgery colleagues, but I think that's one of the reasons why robotics has taken off so much in the pediatric surgery field and the pediatric urology field. And so we've begun to train on our robot uh, because it's so wonderfully articulated, um, the, the ability to, to do this type of intrauterine work. So I would, if I had to predict where this is moving, I would say it's probably moving in that direction because, you know, this was picked up in something that's arguably more influential than the New England Journal of Medicine, and that is the New York Times. There's a huge article about this uh, fetal, you know, endoscopic surgery in the New York Times that you know, Bill has said that their number of people that are that come to them for surgery has significantly uh, has made a has leapt up in number. And you know, to their credit, they've begun to publish on it. Uh, but but the the huge impact, and I think it says a lot for our field, is that uh, you know we've improved the outcome of these children. We've um, reduced the incidence of preterm birth, and now we're taking on. Uh, subsequent delivery uh, and the ability of a mom to go back and have a baby through a vaginal delivery again, as opposed to the risk of uterine rupture and commitment to, um, to cesarean section. And I think that that does say a lot, of, I think, about how the field has evolved as we begin to uh, think about what our next horizons are. So the last thing is to be able to train other centers, and I'd referred to that earlier as, you know, Noel's motto has kind of been, yeah, sure, come on, we'll show you how to do it and we'll take you out to dinner. Um, and one of the interesting things that comes about, uh, um, uh, what is it, the Einstein thing, you know, against favors a prepared mind, right? I mean, we were part of this study at Vanderbilt, thanks to Noel. And then we were able to get this paper out about uh, really trying to dig down deep to figure out the, um, what the reason to shunt is and uh, how we can help families at the time of, um, of consultation. And then we're able to help improve the incidence of preterm labor. So what ends up happening is um, you end up being somebody that people call. And so we've had the opportunity to host uh, many centers that have come down as a team uh, where uh, they come in in the morning and they uh, watch the fetal surgery itself, and then if our schedules aren't ridiculously crazy, then we have a lunch afterwards, and we uh, have several topics and talks that we go over and talk about people how to do it. Paul Grab was one, you know, came from Kansas City, a wonderful, uh, one of my old partners from UAB who's now in Kansas City. And, you know, it's, it's good to see that, you know, it, it is a little bit like, a, I look at it like a little like an open source code, you know, here, take it, make it better. And bring it back to corpus pediatric neurosurgery to make what we do better. And University of Colorado's got a tremendous program. Um, this, uh, this opportunity to go to Australia and help them do the very first fetal surgery that was done there 
uh, and then we actually went up to Canada and helped them do the very first uh, uh, fetal closure that was done at Sick Kids in, in all of Canada. And I don't think you know it at the time, but you know that ends up being kind of a really big thing for our career. It was a I don't mean that like look at me, I'm great. I mean like this was really meaningful because now you think about you know it's not just the kids in Middle Tennessee, but it's it's these families and kids that are you know, pretty widespread just in the places that we've had an opportunity to train and then now in the world. And, you know, we, we get so many letters from the group in Brisbane that talks about how impactful that um, that experience was. Uh, and these are our two teams uh, kind of merged together after the case. That's Martin Wood and myself. You know, our part is like, it's like maybe 25 minutes. You know, so Martin and I had already taken off our scrubs and had a cup of coffee and been for a run. And, you know, by the time the whole thing's done. But uh, that was a really wonderful opportunity to be a part of. And um, if anybody's interested in the written word, um, I actually have it out on a, on a journal that I kept. Um, and if you Google uh, Vanderbilt uh, fetal surgery down under, it's a description of the whole um, kind of meaningful event. And um, uh, I, um, I have to say that it was a terrific opportunity to be a part of that. So I say all that to say, um, I think our job is to uh, help interpret it, help say who benefits and who doesn't. I think our job is to either make the procedure better ourselves or to promote an environment which we um, have our colleagues go do it in a, in a meaningful and um, scientifically robust and solid way. And then I think our job is to educate. and. Uh, I would hope as we reflect back over what we've been able to do over the past 25 years that, that we've accomplished those things. So uh, it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to be here, to spend time with John and your program and to see Dr. Bulsara, who's the chairman of neurosurgery. He and I were residents together. Um, and if anybody wants any stories, I've got a lot. Um, and, uh, but to really come here and be a part of your hospital for this time here at Pediatric Grain Rounds. I can't tell you how meaningful this is for me. So thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. We have a few minutes for questions. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Zemsky. Just stand here. Thank you. So um, the pediatric pain field really got its start because folks noticed that kids or neonates undergoing PDA ligation without adequate analgesia did less well. There's also now a large body of evidence on premature infants and the long-term outcomes of multiple painful procedures in the neonatal ICU. I wonder what you're doing for both acute post-operative pain for these uh, babies and long-term, is anybody looking at some of these outcomes uh, neurodevelopmental outcomes, pain system outcomes, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, we definitely inject them with uh, Versed uh, and another substance that I'm blocking on right now before we do the closure in the OR. I mean, I do like to say, particularly to my cardiac surgery colleagues, that, uh, you know, I do, uh, I operate on a heart-lung machine. It's called the placenta, right? <laughs> it was the original heart-lung machine, you know. Uh, but we definitely do give sedation during the time of the actual closure itself. And then, you know, I'd have to have Ray, our anesthesiologist, talk to you about uh, what, what comes across the placental, you know, membrane 
and um, and the pain control for that. But I think that's a great question, and certainly that that data in the pain world uh, and stimulation world has been seen in the NICU. Um, so it's a great question. I think we we take it on somewhat, but I I wonder if we could probably do it better. Yes, sir. So, John, thanks for a great talk. That was wonderful. <clears throat> the question I have sort of relates to quality and improving sort of care for these kids who clearly benefit from having this procedure done for myelomeningocele. You know, you know, the way you improve quality is through regionalization or improving care at individual centers. The question I have for you is the one thing we haven't done very well in America is regionalization. And do you have any concerns that as centers adopt this new technique that you'll have centers that are doing it and probably shouldn't be doing it much like yeah. we've seen in uh, congenital heart surgery at yeah. a few places? Could I ask, what's your background? Where... Uh, I'm a pediatric surgeon. Okay, great. That's a great question. Um, so uh, I can remember being part of the pediatric neurosurgery section executive committee when the mom study came out. And, you know, around a big table, you know, <laughs> one person stands up and quotes Anne Rand, you know, like, it's all of us can do it all now as much as we want, you know, and then one of them's P.T. Barnum, and then somebody is like, we must keep it regionalized, just us. And the truth is that it comes, as you know, is that it's somewhere in between. Um, NAF, uh, NAFNET exists, the North American Fetal Network, um, to help be an arbiter of how many cases that the, the group needs to do. Um, and in order to stay proficient, and then uh, looks at outcomes when they start up, and if uh, if there are issues that are flagged early on, uh, the the teeth arm of a group like that, you know, is not very strong, uh, but certainly it's an attempt to be able to um, uh, to say who gets to do it and who doesn't. It's a great question. Um, how many? Um, how many debates at the ASPN have I either been a part of or moderated where we as a community have tried to say, um, you know, limit it to 15 centers across the U.S. or six cases a year? Um, I tend to fall on, um, you know, the truth is, is that the neurosurgical part of it is just a smaller Milo closure. And actually, because the layers are so unformed, it's like wet tissue paper, um, that it's really, a, I don't want to say simpler, but it's less layers to close. And I'm more concerned about time in the back of my head than, than, than I am in a postnatal closure. And so our piece is relatively straightforward. It's the, it's the, it's the decision about a go or no go that occurs multiple times with each, opera, with each operation. It's that team approach. And I'm sorry, I just, I'm from Mississippi, I talk too much, but I, I do have a video that kind of shows the team and shows some of the decision-making that, that we do. Um, and, and that's where the benefit is. You know, an, an OB can open a uterus away from the placenta and do a version and bring the back up. And a neurosurgeon can, close the back and the OB can close that opening. Uh, you know, those things can be learned. It's the decision-making uh, about who to do and then when it's time not to do and even knowing when to stop in the OR. Uh, and that stuff comes with experience. But that's the hard stuff to regulate. I personally think that if you do six cases a year, technically, you can do it. 
But if those six cases a year are with maybe you're the MFM and you're the neurosurgeon and you're the plastic surgeon and you're the anesthesiologist and the next time you're the neurosurgeon and you're the MFM and you're the, and then the next time you're the, mm -mm, that won't fly. It's gotta be the same team every time. And I mean, not to go geeky on you, but when I'm up there doing my part, it's like the Borg. There are five voices in my head constantly. And I'm just doing my work. I'm just doing, doing my closure, but constantly, what about that skin? Is that skin edge there? It's, it's a remarkable group thinking experience to be a part of. Thank you again for it. Okay, thank you all so much, appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. I really enjoyed being here, thank you so much. Yeah, the real question is, that's the only the infrastructure that yeah.